We're back with another edition of the Federalist Radio Hour. I'm Emily Drashinsky, culture editor here at The Federalist. As always, you can email the show at radio at thefederalist.com. Follow us on Twitter at FDRLST. Make sure to subscribe wherever you download your podcasts as well. Today, we're joined by Eric Schwartzel. He's the author of a fantastic new book that you should absolutely pick up. It's called Red Carpet, Hollywood, China, and the Global Battle for Cultural Supremacy. Eric, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show. Hi, good morning. It's my pleasure. Yeah, so this book is, it's packed with information and just sort of tells the story in an incredibly compelling and well-reported way. And I want to start actually with, I guess you would call it an epigraph that the book starts with. Um, It's because it puts it so clearly, and I imagine that's why you juxtaposed these two quotes before folks even get into the book. You have a quote from Will Hayes, who's the president of the Motion Picture Producers and Distributors of America in 1923, who said, every film that goes from America abroad, wherever it shall be sent, shall correctly portray to the world the purposes, the ideals, the accomplishments, the opportunities, and the life of America. We are going to sell America to the world with American motion pictures. Then you have a quote from Xi Jinping, who said in 2014, during its 5,000 year history, the Chinese nation has created a brilliant and profound culture. We should disseminate the most fundamental Chinese culture in a popular way. So can you talk to us about what happened when the American idea, sort of the 1923 sentiment started to clash in 2014, uh, but actually earlier than that, with the Chinese sort of outlook on their own culture and how their own culture can sort of be used to uh, further their political ideas. When do you, or are there any examples, obviously the book talks about seven years in Tibet and many others, but is there anything that stands out to you as like a really early um, glimpse into where this was going? Wow, what a fascinating uh, place to start because I have to say when I was reporting the book, I really had to bring myself up to speed on a lot of Hollywood history. And what I was struck by was that that quote that you that you opened with from the 1920s really represents uh, a specific moment in Hollywood history, which is this moment when we start to see an expectation that Hollywood will do America's bidding. And um, around the same time, uh, that same that same guy you quoted, Will Hayes, described Hollywood as an adjunct of the State Department. And then there's been there have been many good books written about how in World War II, Hollywood was called upon to bolster patriotism with certain movies or documentaries. And then obviously in through the 1980s during the Cold War, you know, every movie is about the, the Soviet bad guys. And and it the Hollywood film becomes this arm of American power. It's only relatively recently that that has been replaced by a model that sees Hollywood not as an American industry, I would say, but as just an inherently global one. Mm. And I'm sorry, please. Well, I was going to say, in that way, it sort of mirrors the approaches of other uh, industries, especially American-led industries. And uh, Hollywood was sort of a good example of where that was going, especially as you write in the the late '90s. Exactly. I mean, so one example that that always stuck with me was I was talking to an executive who worked at Sony who joined the studio in the 90s and told me about the first Spider-Man movie that was made under his watch. I think there were approximately like four dozen, but the first one featured an American flag on the poster. And 
by the time a third or fourth movie would come out several years later, there was no American flag on the poster because there was no flag on the poster because these were movies that had to appeal to audiences everywhere. So you wouldn't put anything that would kind of, you know, not alienate, but just sort of designate it as an American product. And China's box office, which really started to grow at a clip around 2008, gave it a specific power in that dynamic where it wasn't just about making sure you made a movie that appealed to global audiences. It was that you made a movie that appealed to global audiences and didn't anger Chinese officials. Mm. When you, when you were reporting something and talking to some of the people that were involved back then, do you think they had uh, a sense of how, how bad this could get for, for everyone or how, um, what's the word I'm looking for? I mean, basically how hard this would always be to navigate or ultimately be to navigate. Did they know what they were getting themselves into or was there just sort of this, this blinding, uh, effect of all of the money? <laughs> Well, there was there were some whispers I was told at the time, you know, that was there was there going to be an inevitable inevitable clash of values. But Hollywood was really just one part of a broader effort to jump into the modernizing Chinese economy. Um, Hollywood movies started flowing into Chinese theaters in 1994. So not too long before the effort, China's effort to join the WTO would would really get underway so i mean hollywood movies are going into chinese theaters while boeing is signing deals and and everyone's looking and you know the math is pretty easy like you just need to know one number like one billion people (laughs) you know it's it's pretty easy and but but i think that um what i found was that when these studio executives were making these decisions it's very rare to make any decision in life and feel like it's part of this broader macro mm-hmm. ideological rivalry between two countries. I mean, oftentimes these studio chiefs are under pressure to hit certain numbers and hit numbers that will make shareholders happy on a quarter by quarter basis. Um, so I think the story of Hollywood's rush into China is is really broadly a story about an industry that has to function on quarter by quarter, a quarter by quarter basis, trying to do business with a country that very casually references 5,000 years of history and always had a longer term view. Um, And then there are these moments throughout, throughout the relationship where it just becomes an economic no brainer for Hollywood to keep rushing toward these Chinese box office grosses like in 2008 i mean you and i grew up around the same time like it's hard to remember this but dvd sales for a long time kept the lights on in studios because they were so profitable and they sold millions and millions of copies a week um whenever the dvd sales collapsed because of the rise of streaming studio chiefs had to plug that hole somewhere and China was there waiting. So there were these dynamics in place that I think, like I said, quickly made it more of a sort of an economic concern, an immediate economic concern, and not part of this broader issue of whether or not they were going to give rise to an American competitor. 
That's really interesting. And I think the history that you get into about Hollywood and its relationship with sort of, I guess, patriotism or even the government is is really interesting and relevant. And I want to break that down into two parts and sort of like what you think changed in America and what you think changed in China, maybe geopolitically and culturally on both levels to sort of make this relationship um, come together when it did and then maybe start splintering when it is now. Like, would you say that in America, there became this or, or less of a sort of um, cultural importance of patriotic duty or I mean, I'm, I'm just sort of throwing that out there. I don't know if that's true. But if you look at like Jimmy Stewart and, and Ronald Reagan um, mm-hmm. and like Capra movies, it just Hollywood was a very different place. Um, and I, I'm wondering if you think that there were some sort of cultural changes in the industry and in the country um, that made this relationship more possible or was easier to justify. What an interesting point. I mean, I do think I do think that you know it's interesting because after September 11th, there were conversations about the role Hollywood should play, whether it was in you know, winning hearts and minds across the Middle East um, or what kind of stories it should tell, what stories it should valorize. Mm. Um, But it didn't have a stickiness like the Cold War narrative did, probably in part because it was just a more global market. Um, But one thing I think, I think to answer your question, what I found so interesting was I would do some reporting, like there's a chapter in the book about a decision that MGM made concerning a reboot of Red Dawn, the movie about the original, the original 1984 film is about a Soviet invasion of the US. MGM reboot the, rebooted the film in 2009 and made it a Chinese invasion of the US. When China learned about this, they got very angry, made it clear that they would punish MGM if they released the film. And MGM took the drastic step of sh- sending the movie to a special effects firm, paying it a million dollars to go in and swap out every Chinese flag and replace it with a North Korean one. So that the, when the movie was ultimately released, it was about a North Korean invasion of the U S and not a Chinese invasion of the U S. Um, also side note, the last time that a movie has been put into production by a major Hollywood studio with a Chinese villain, Um, Mm. so it's been more than a decade since we've, since we've had that. Um, however, my point, and I do have one is that I think when that happened, when the China to North Korea switch was made, it was not a secret. It was reported on at the time. And what I found fascinating was going back and reading coverage and talking to people who lived through it, how there really wasn't it didn't become this big political issue. In fact, the only people I could find at the time who criticized it were members of a Michigan militia mm-hmm. who thought that it was a cop-out. And I, I, I've thought about this since, and I think it had to do with the fact that we just were not in the, we were not in the moment we're in with China right now. It was 2012. There were even then uh, hopes that Xi Jinping, when he assumed power, would be something of a reformer. Um, I think there there was anxiety among a lot of Americans about China's rise, but certainly not to the degree it is today. And you can imagine if that same decision were made today, MGM would be pilloried, I think, by politicians on both sides of the aisle. But a lot of what Hollywood was doing back, let's say, during the the first and second Obama administrations really just, I think, kind of passed if not unnoticed, then 
of little concern because it didn't yet it hadn't yet become clear that these two countries and all that they represent was going was going to become this broader macro rivalry. Right. What's the harm? I can see people uh, asking themselves that question at the time. Um, and Xi Jinping is an important character here. We we mentioned the, I guess, epigraph. I don't even know if that's the right term since it's at the beginning of the book. But you, we mentioned his quote from, from 2014. Um, but of course, some of this goes back uh, to the 90s and, and maybe even beyond. You have, a, uh, you, you have some really fascinating details from a meeting um, with <laughs> Henry Kissinger yeah. um, and studio executives who came to DC to meet with Chinese officials, um, and that would have been, I'm assuming, in like 1996 or 1997. Uh, what what sort of politically in China made this um, more and more it made the sort of Hollywood's capitulation more and more um, of a, a very real thing over the course of the last several decades? I think I think it um, you know in China Hollywood became this symbol of what Chinese leaders were going to do when it came to opening up to the world. Um, you know, it's, it's this conversation, I think, is really colored by the by the past year or so um, when we've seen China really looking inward and really getting more aggressive on the world stage. But it wasn't always the case. And in the 90s and in the early 2000s, there was more of a spigot where Chinese leaders would allow Western influence in and then maybe tighten it. But it was described to me oftentimes as sort of a one step forward, two steps back, but, but that there was always kind of a, a feeling that there was progress being made. And, you know, Disney was allowed to build a theme park and Marvel movies started hooking Chinese moviegoers on Western heroes. And, that while there were pockets of the CCP who would say, you know, we shouldn't want our kids growing up with these Western ideals or these Western values, that oftentimes, whether because it was economically prudent or because they had fewer concerns than they than they used to, Chinese leaders were kind of still kind of opening themselves up and letting this kind of cooperation take place. It's really been under Xi Jinping, especially over the past, I'd say four years or so, that that has changed and the tenor has changed. And there's a lot more scrutiny of, of that Western influence. And C the CCP is really calling on its people to think China support China and advocate for China. Um, but, but, but the movies, I mean, it's, it's, it's this fascinating, they became this odd kind of bellwether of just how liberal Chinese leaders might be getting. And it just so happens that now the answer is very clear. It, the answer is not, not very liberal at all. <laughs> you have a, a chapter in the book on censorship, and that's obviously one of the issues at the the very center of this entire conversation and this entire problem, um, with some examples that have not sort of uh, penetrated the public consciousness yet. I mean, this one about Harry Potter and the Dementors being too disturbing for Chinese audiences is just, <laughs> it's just mind-blowing. Yeah. Um, but... One thing that's very hard to, um, I guess, describe or fully understand is how these uh, censorship, the, the increasingly stringent uh, censorship demands 
of the CCP have just shaped um, American film in ways that we might not even understand, but they just sort of have this influence where in order to make the movie palatable to Chinese audiences, when people are writing scripts and, and pitching movies, they're already kind of uh, preemptively censored. Is that kind of a, a correct understanding of the process? And if so, how has that, you know, as somebody who's reported on this and, and written about it extensively, how, how serious has that uh, had an effect on the, the films themselves? I think I think it's the key to understanding just how powerful China is in Hollywood because there's two layers of influence. The one is is like you mentioned, you know, a Harry Potter movie goes over to China and the censors who uh, frankly tend to be a little paternalistic decide that the dementors are too dis- disturbing for Chinese eyes and they cut them from the film. But the other layer that I think makes China unique is its ability to control what screenwriters and producers make in Hollywood, regardless of whether they're showing that movie in China. So this happens in a couple ways. So the first would be, let's say you're working on a script for a new Jurassic Park movie. That is a movie that is going to be uh, put into production at more than $200 million. It's going to be wildly expensive and it's going to be made at a budget level that all but needs a release in China to make the numbers work. So you're going to write a script and you're going to make sure that there's nothing in that script that is going to jeopardize that. And there's not going to be anyone cast in the film that jeopardizes that access. Furthermore, let's say you're working on a movie that is going to cost $10 million and it's about the 2019 protests in Hong Kong. It's not a movie that is being made at a budgetary level that's ever going to need release in China. And you know that the censors wouldn't approve it anyway. No studio in Hollywood is going to touch that script because making the movie at all will jeopardize the release of the Jurassic World script. Because China has shown that making a movie that it disagrees with or that it doesn't want anyone in the world to see is something that they will punish a studio for doing however they can. And so that means they might not let in the bigger, more expensive movies down the road. Um, They might cut off access to other investments like a theme park. Um, And so a lot of the, a lot of the silencing, I think, you know, goes beyond the simple cosmetic changes being made before a movie can be shown in Chinese theaters. Right. No, that, that makes a lot of sense. Actually, it, it may be helpful. Um, and of course, people, if they're curious, should pick up the book. But if you could describe for us just the basics of what the process is like for um, American studios who are getting their, their films shown in China, is it, you know, it, it, there may be a misconception that the, the script goes to the, the CCP censor's desk and he, he stamps it um, uh, in a sort of cartoonish sense. But how does it actually, how does this actually play out? What do they have to do with their scripts? and with their um, plans for production and all of that um, before they can get approval in China? It depends on where you are. So in China, um, if you're a Chinese filmmaker, the the image you just had of the stamp of approval is not far off. Um, (laughs) A script has to be approved before it can go into production. Um, In the U.S., it works a little bit differently. Um, 
let's just use let's just use Jurassic World as an example. Um, let's say you you've just you're a director, you've just put the finishing touches in the editing room on Jurassic World. Um, oftentimes that happens far closer to a release date than I think a lot of audiences would think. Um, but let's say you're a month out from release, you send a version of the film to Beijing where a collection of Chinese censors with the Ministry of Propaganda will watch it. And this is usually a group, it's very hard to figure out who these people exactly are, but it's my understanding that it, it tends to be kind of state bureaucrats who have made the rounds um, I think it's often a, a cushier job to to retire to. Um, and, and often sometimes um, film studies professors as well who will watch a film. And three things can happen. They can let Jurassic World into Chinese theaters with no problem. They can say it's allowed in if you make these changes. And they send back a memo saying, you know, this line of dialogue has to go. This scene is too violent. Um, this you know, this implication that this character is a lesbian has to be cut, you know, things like that. Maybe let's say it adds up to a minute, 90 seconds of, of things being removed. And the third option is the movie is not approved for release and the studio never really officially hears why. So this system has taken root where studios have to watch and see like what gets in, what doesn't get in, what has to be changed and kind of just ingest all of it to figure out what will be kosher and what won't. Mm. And so it only takes a couple high profile examples for everyone to learn the lesson, right? You know, so um, if Jurassic World gets in, but they have to cut this, I'm making this up. This didn't actually happen, I don't think. But like, if, if let's say Jurassic World has a character who has a girl, a woman who has a girlfriend, like, and they had to cut a reference to that girlfriend because Chinese censors have issues with on-screen portrayals of homosexuality. Like, it kind of reminds everyone, everyone else looking at a script is like, oh wait, maybe we should cut that mm. that 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 reference. You know, you know what I mean? Like, the system kind of allows you to divine what will be allowed and what won't. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense as well. Um, one other uh, movie that you you write about, uh, Red Corner, which is not a film I was familiar with, but sort of revisiting the history of it was so interesting. Um, you write, the hope of Red Corner that Western business and culture would have a democratizing effect on China's communist regime was one shared by executives and politicians selling a wary public on letting the country into the global economy. Red Corner, said Richard Gere, is a far more important film to me than Seven Years in Tibet because it has the catalyst for change in the world. So even Gere himself at the time thought that this sort of economic thawing or economic opening um, would be beneficial to both parties. Is that really the way that this was all being justified? And if you could fill us a little in a little bit on Red Corner and the story of, of Red Corner, I think that would be helpful. Sure. So yeah, Red Corner um, uh, released in 1997 uh, about starring Richard Gere as this, this Western media executive who is is in china trying to do what a lot of media executives at the time were doing which is cut these deals to i mean i think the show he's trying to bring to china is like some knockoff of baywatch there's like a baywatch <laughs> knockoff involved in the film um anyway so um and he he sort of gets framed for this murder and thrust into china's awful judicial system and um it's it's sort of this this two-hour tour of this judicial nightmare and um 
Richard Gere. It, it was this on-screen reflection of Richard Gere's personal opinion of China. He had already spent several years defending Tibet, defending the Dalai Lama, and um, and really being, I think, probably Hollywood's most vocal critic of China and the Communist Party. Um, so this this movie comes out, and and you're right, it was sort of a reflection of the moment we were in. I mean, uh, Bill Clinton, whenever he was defending his support of China joining the WTO, uh, gave these speeches in which he said that the economic uh, liberalization would lead to democratic reform, especially with regards to um, China's acceptance of the internet. Um, had this attitude and this argument that a country allowing the internet in where people can sort of form their own networks would just inevitably lead to, I don't think he put it in these words, but some kind of revolution or some kind of uprising and reform even. Um, but it was not just a democratic argument. Rupert Murdoch also gave uh interviews where he said that fax machines would sort of allow dissidents to spread their message. And, you know, but this is, I mean, this is something that I guess, you know, when, when was the last time we really heard something of this? Probably the Arab Spring, right? Where right, totally. this, this idea that the technology is going to just inevitably allow reform to flow. And what we've seen in China is that the internet has just really become a tool of, of the state and the surveillance capabilities it has. Um, you know, Hollywood, Hollywood functioned as this kind of bizarre barometer of that, too, because I think in certain corners of Hollywood, there was a thought that, you know, first of all, Chinese people deserve to be entertained, too, which I don't think anyone could argue with. But I think that there was also a sense that maybe Hollywood could play a role similar to that as well. And by by showing the virtues of the West and of the liberal democratic model that there might be some kind of that, that in China, there might be a response similar to what there had been around the world, which is, you know, I, I, I love this line by um, political scientist, Joseph Nye, who said that America's soft power had made it a, a quote empire by invitation. Hmm. That's a, that's a wonderful quote. It's sort of like, uh, you know, get David Hasselhoff to uh, East Berlin. <laughs> exactly, exactly, exactly. And and it's, you know, it's, um, I think it has a, a, a truth to it. Um, and I don't think it's false today. Um, I just think we're, we're in the early stages now of China, mount, China mounting a serious competitor to it. Yeah, right. Um, and then the the question of Xi Jinping, I think, is an important one um, because obviously you've you've written about how this happened before Xi Jinping took power in China. Uh, but his his outlook um, does seem to be an accelerant um, to sort of taking seriously China's uh, way, ability to harness soft power. And, and film is obviously one of that. Olympics are, of course, a different part of that. Um, how how important has he been to the uh, acceleration and maybe now the the deacceleration of, of this? relationship i think he's it's been it's been critical and he, um xi jinping has made it very clear what he thinks his entertainment industry should do um 
there is a famous speech that Mao Zedong gave in 1942 in which he outlined the role that art would play in the communist state. And he said, there's no such thing as art for art's sake. And his understanding and his enforcement really was that art would serve the state it would extol the virtues of the state and that there would be, there would always be a sort of inherent messaging in entertainment and that it was the role of the state to police what other countries said about it in their art. So this, this playbook that I described earlier was really outlined here in the, in the early 1940s and Xi Jinping a few years ago, gave a very similar speech on the anniversary of Mao's speech. I mean, it was not a subtle move. He really <laughs> wanted to draw a parallel here and, and said much the same thing, which is that art workers, as he called them in the translation, should know that their job is to help the state. And, and this is kind of, this has collided a little bit with the commercialization of China's economy where you know, we have this, I don't know what we, what, what do we call it these days? It's like authoritarian capitalist model, or we have this kind of uh, communism with, or capitalism with Chinese characteristics. Like there's this weird hybrid of capitalism and communism existing in China. And that is reflected in the entertainment industry under Xi as well. Because if you go to the movies in China, let's say there's like five theaters to choose from, you might, um, three of them might be state-sanctioned propaganda movies about, you know, the virtues of the People's Liberation Army, but two of them might be like comedies that are just Chinese versions of American stories and films. There's this commercialization that has happened. And so what the studios and the actors in China have learned is that there's a bit of a one for you, one for me model at work, and they are trying to balance that constantly. So it's not uncommon to see a Chinese actor or actress who will star in a big commercial film and make a lot of money and then star in a state propaganda film that allows them to kind of accrue political capital that they can then go spend on the more commercial pursuits. Um, under Xi over the past year or two, it's tilted a little bit more toward the propagandistic and less toward the commercial. Hmm. Sure. Yeah. That, that just even thinking about that, that reminds me of another question I wanted to ask, which is how much of their, the, the sort of Chinese um, film industry was intentionally kind of learned from America and from Hollywood uh, because they, I mean, they studied closely just the sort of, in some regards, it seems that we actually like kind of taught them how to make uh, blockbuster movies and how to shoot and, and do all of that stuff. Um, so how much of this is actually coming from knowledge they intentionally gleaned from Hollywood? Well, there has certainly been a technology transfer and you know, in other industries, I think technology, the technology transfer that China often requires for market access is very easy to understand. It's like it's as cut and dry as handing over airplane blueprints. Um, in movie making, it's a little harder, right? Because how do you teach someone the art of cinematic persuasion or cinematic emotion? And but it has happened in in ways large and small. In some cases 
Hollywood directors and screenwriters have gone over to China to punch up scripts or direct movies. And direct, and, and oftentimes, like I, I spend some time on set with a, a director named Rennie Harlan, who um, was very popular in the 80s and 90s for movies like Die Hard 2 and uh, Cliffhanger, big, like, you know, brawny action movies. Um, he totally flamed out in the 90s with a movie called Cutthroat Island that was this massive bomb and really kind of killed his career until about 15 years after that, he got hired to direct a movie in China where they were like, oh my God, we're obsessed. We like have this big Hollywood director who can come and show us how it's done. And he's been working there ever since, not only working there, but really kind of on China's A-list. Um, so that is, that is one example, but then there's other, I think more grounded examples, like in this Chinese movie called Wolf Warrior two, which was this, which was until recently the highest grossing Chinese movie of all time. Think of it as kind of like China's Rambo. It's about this Chinese soldier who has to go to Africa and save the day and kill a bunch of, um, you know, really awful Americans. Um, this movie was made with the help of Western talent. So, and, and it was in ways that I think a lot of audiences don't consciously think about, but that can translate as sort of like a more sophisticated form of storytelling. So like a stunt choreographer and a fight choreographer, these people who can really make a movie seem more professional, um, though, those roles are often imported from the US where they have experience on these big blockbusters that China is still learning how to do. And so the result are these Chinese movies that have these elements like maybe even like sound design or um, you know, production design that you know when it's cheap, you can tell when it's cheap, but you don't tell when it's, you can't really tell when it's good. <laughs> and, and it's really helped kind of lift the sophistication of the Chinese movies that are being sold to not just Chinese audiences, but audiences around the world. If we take a step back, I'm curious um, about how you would describe the the process of writing this book. Was there an eagerness um, among some people? Because it seems like this reckoning has kind of come on over the last several years, and it's, it's kind of dawned on Hollywood quickly, and perhaps uh, COVID and sort of the Chinese wielding their quota system in a way that was uh, different from what Hollywood expected in certain cases, um, you know, Disney and Chloe Zhao and all of that. It, it seems as though there's, there's realization in Hollywood that this might not have even been a good uh, financial bet, let alone alone ethical one. Um, so was it the process of getting people to to share their stories and their experiences? What was that like um, in the post-COVID world? That's interesting. I, I, I did a lot of the reporting right before uh, COVID forced us all into quarantine. So I did a lot of I did a lot of the writing in, in, in quarantine. What I found was, you know, if tensions between the U.S. and China were rising, people were more cautious to talk. However, I also found, especially when it came to China, I think a lot of a lot of listeners might just assume that reporting in China is is um, you know, a nightmare. And and what I found was if if you could get there, and sometimes that's easier said than done, <laughs> but if you could get there, um, there was an eagerness in the entertainment industry to talk about what it had done, what it had managed to, uh, 
accomplish in just 20 years, just how formidable a competitor they became so quickly to, to this Hollywood industry that, you know, took a hundred years to, to acquire its dominance. Um, so there was, there was a sense of pride. I do think though, that even I'd say probably like by mid 2020 or so, um, I started, it, people started to really clam up. And I think as a reporter, my, my timing was quite good because I think trying to report a book like this today would be significantly harder. Um, I kind of wrapped the book in early 2021 and I started to, I started to detect a real shift in tone. I started to hear from people saying like, you know, we can't talk on the phone about this or, you know, can you remind me yet again, how I'm described in your book and, and, and those kinds of concerns coming up more frequently. And I think if I were trying to report this book today, that would be even more the case. Oh, that's really interesting. I sort of expected it to be the opposite because it's, um, it seems that there is this sense in Hollywood that again, it, it, the financial bet, let alone the ethical one might not be playing out. And I'm curious what you would say on that. Have you noticed that in Hollywood, as they sort of have made these huge budget movies that end up, you know, in a couple of cases, um, not getting shown in China, at least not yet that, um, you know, maybe it's time for them to start Googling, you know, who are the Uyghurs? and mm. what's going on in China, et cetera, et cetera. And they can sort of get into their their um, social justice and all decide to be Richard Gere at some point. But um, do you do you sense that there's a there's been a, a change even as people are pitching movies and writing movies right now? Um, or is that just, are they still pretty uh, determined to make this money? I haven't detected a change. And I think um, a big part of the reason why is because the studios that are making these big movies, even if there were people inside who who wanted to explore some of these themes, or as you said, were raising some of these, these ethical qualms. I mean, these studios over the past decade and a half or so have become these become parts of these massive corporate conglomerates. And so there are just even if like the movies are given a freedom because of the market access being shut off or she looking inward the studios that are making these movies are still part of these larger corporate holes that have significant interests in the country that they don't they don't want to jeopardize and so i haven't detected a change i mean i think i think you know like your point about like a, a movie about the Uyghurs and things like that, that still feels all but impossible. Right. I will say that, and maybe this just sort of speaks to where the priorities are. I will say that I notice a change in the tone when I'm talking to a studio executive who has left the job and has a little bit of distance. I will often find that that he or she will just sort of express more frustration, not from maybe an ethical or even like a patriotic standing, but from a, a sense that the studios got played and that economically there was this asymmetry that um, was just inherently unfair. I have to say, like, I mean, not an industry with a ton of fans of Donald Trump, but uh, like I think a lot of people in business, I would often hear 
from studio executives who would say things like, you know, I, I disagree with him on everything, but I have to admire his stance on China and the lopsided um, dynamic that it forces businesses into. Mm, okay, that yeah, that that um, that's really interesting because it's people are talking about it more, and and your book is a, a great example of that. And so I was curious at how it was playing um, internally. My last question, Eric, is how COVID. Um, you have a sequel, uh, a chapter called Sequel in the book um, that follows up on this. And it's interesting to know that your writing process was was during COVID and a lot of the reporting came before it. Um, how did COVID change um, some of these dynamics? Um, you, you write Chinese audiences growing preference for Chinese films became even more apparent. Chinese streaming services had once proven a lucrative outlet for Hollywood studios and then uh, COVID sort of changed some of that. So can you explain kind of just on the, the business side and the cultural side what happened over the course of COVID to maybe change some of these dynamics? Yeah, so COVID, um, and it was, it's just, it's something that I think affected not just Hollywood, but so many Western businesses because after COVID shut down the US economy and the Chinese economy, the Chinese economy recovered so much faster. And so in the case of entertainment, movie theaters in China reopened far sooner than American movie theaters did. And it allowed the Chinese box office to become the number one box office in the world. Now we knew that was going to happen, but COVID allowed it to happen much faster. You could also, I mean, I have to say like, not exactly a fair game, right? Like <laughs> you're number one because the other, the other number one isn't even like selling tickets. So I totally, <laughs> totally get that. But inevitably it was this massive symbolic victory. And then there was this, there was this moment in late 2020, early 21, where one earnings call after another, whether it was Daimler Chrysler or Nike, like they all had the same story, which was, I know that the investors were expecting these awful returns because COVID has shut down the economy, but China has recovered to such a degree that it's become this salvation and it's allowed us to recover faster as well. And so COVID, I think, and China's faster recovery out of it gave it significantly more leverage because all, not just Hollywood, but all of these industries were at such a moment of desperation that China's recovery out of COVID gave it a much, a much greater degree of leverage over those, um, over those companies. The book is Red Carpet, Hollywood, China, and the Global Battle for Cultural Supremacy. Eric Schwartzel, thank you so much for your time today. Hey, no, it's been a pleasure. It's really fun. Absolutely. Well, you've been listening to another edition of the Federalist Radio Hour. Red Carpet is out now. Make sure to pick up your copy. I'm Emily Jashinsky, culture editor here at the Federalist. We will be back soon with more. Until then, be lovers of freedom and anxious for the fray. Well, I-